I, um, last week we started a series on 1 Timothy with the aim towards establishing our church. That means to bring our church to a firm and stable basis. There are three phases, three broad phases in a church life. There's planting, then there's becoming established, and then there's becoming a reproducing church. So we're planted. We just had our three-year anniversary, and I praise God for that. And we have grown, and we, have become, we are becoming established, but we are not yet arrived at the place where we can say we are an established church for reasons that will become clear as I preach through 1 Timothy. Um, so the point of this series and where we're aiming for the next few years is to become an established church. Then having become established, we can move towards the next goal of the church's life to be a reproducing church. But we're in the becoming established phase. Um, so, Timothy. Last week we introduced the book of Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul, to Timothy, who was an ap apostolic delegate to the church in Ephesus. And he was put in Ephesus to combat against false teaching, to establish elders and deacons, to preserve sound doctrine in the church. And therefore, this, this book is necessary and applicable to the life of every church since it's been written. Um, so I want to read today 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. Apostle Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslayers, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. Now, Christian cults and sects have arisen since the dawn of Christianity and they continue to arise. Nitty and I were approached in two or three times when we were together. I think once in ShopRite, once in Walmart, once in uh, um, the place where they sell gadgets. I forget the technical store. What's that called? Radio Not Radio Shack. What are you, from the 1980s, <laughs> Gary? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Living in the past, man. <laughs> Not Radio Shack. Best Buy. Best Buy. <laughs> um, but so the mother of God cult approaches approached us, and their their main thing was that God was a mother, and this was like the the essence of their teaching. And then I, I had long discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses before they would come to my house periodically, and we would have these great theological discussions. But they were, I mean, Gary, we were talking about this yesterday. It's almost like the the thing they were about is that Jesus is not God. And so, Christian cults and sects have arisen since the dawn of Christianity. And the way I see it, it begins usually with a distortion of some truth in Scripture. Then it becomes, turns into a preoccupation with that distortion. 
And then that preoccupation leads to um, set faithful living aside and instead imports rituals and experiences as something necessary to Christian experience. So it starts with a distortion, then a preoccupation with that distortion around which a system of beliefs is based, and then faithful living is set aside for rituals or experience, and all the while Christ is pushed out of the periphery in these sects. In 1 Timothy you have something very similar. False teachers are infiltrating the church at Ephesus, and their teaching is undermining the gospel and destabilizing the church at Ephesus. Destabilizing the church at Ephesus. And these teachers seem to be preoccupied with obscurities around the Old Testament law specifically. Um, and they're dogmatically insisting on their interpretation of these obscurities and is promoting uh, speculation rather than stewardship and it's prioritizing the Old Testament law over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want us to be a destabilized church. I want us to become established, be brought to a firm and stable basis. Now, a destabilized church comes from a distortion of the Christian truth or a preoccupation with something that is not central to true Christianity. We have seen some charismatics do this with Acts chapter 2, not seeing that chapter's redemptive context and the fact that it was the apostles who were sent out with unique power to do the work to establish the kingdom of God, but they see Acts chapter 2 and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a necessary and secondary step that every Christian should seek, which will be evidence with the speaking in tongues, and therefore their whole system of beliefs is built off this distortion of a misinterpretation of the Bible. I talked to somebody yesterday who was a King James only advocate, believing that other versions of the Bible were devil's translations and that the main emphasis of this person's evangelistic thrust, or maybe not a main emphasis, but a main emphasis of, of, of his evangelism was to prove that the King James Bible was the only word of God, and as opposed to the ESV or another translation. Other people and denominations uh, seem to be under the impression that 1 Corinthians 12 is the only book chapter in the Bible. And there's an unhealthy preoccupation with the miraculous and speaking in tongues and miracles and prophecies, which are operative today, I believe, but what is usually done by these groups is they make those things central to the life of the church and are preoccupied with the extraordinary instead of living faithful in the ordinary. And they wander off into fruitless discussion, like the Apostle Paul says. So all that to say, if our church is going to be brought to a firm and stable basis, we need to uphold and insist on what is central to the Christian faith. We need to uphold it and insist on it. So the thing that is, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. You've heard that before, right? So that's what we need to do in this church if we're going to be brought to a firm and stable basis. And I think we are doing that, but we need to continue to do that. So I have four ways from this text that we can keep the main thing, the main thing, as we move forward in health in this church. Number one is preserve sound doctrine. We're not those this kind of church that believes that doctrine is not necessary to life. We, I believe it is. For doctrine is truth. And we're people marked by truth. 
Doctrine just means teaching, and a teaching according with the truth. I have no interest in being a, no interest in being a church who has nothing to do with truth. Um, I, I don't care if what Todd and I were just talking. If you bring a lot of people in the door that just believe everything and you know, and, and their their minds are so open that their brain falls out and, and nothing is nothing is believed, then what you're building is a church built on something other than the truth. So what we need to do in this church is preserve sound doctrine. In verse three, Paul tells uh, Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. First of all, remain in Ephesus. We get a lot from Ephesus in the Bible, which is modern-day Turkey. But we see it a lot in the book of Acts. It's where Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos the way more accurately. It's where Paul had discussions at the Hall of Tyrannus. It's where those, those silversmiths uh, rioted, remember? They said, great as Artemis. And they were rioting against the Apostle Paul. That all happened in Ephesus. Um, the book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. And Spall, uh, Spall, Paul uh, spent two to three years building up the church in Ephesus. And when he left in Acts 20, you can read this. This is Acts 20, verse 29 through 31. He took the elders of the church. And in Acts 20, 29 through 31, listen carefully to what he says to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. It is amazing that... A few years later, this is exactly what happened. And this is why he sent Timothy and told him to remain in Ephesus so that you might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Because fierce wolves did come in from among them and they were speaking twisted things. What were they teaching? Verse 4, Paul says that so charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So first of all, different doctrine. They were teaching something that was different from the apostolic teaching handed down from Christ. The word in Greek is heterodidaskalane, which means hetero means different. Didaskalane means teaching, so it's a different teaching. It's not just a teaching that completely um, opposes something. It's, it's a teaching that swerves from the truth. It wanders away from the truth. So if you have a line in a different teaching, the teaching is going di to diverge in vital and serious ways. So it's not in direct opposition to the gospel, but it diverges from the, from the gospel. And that's very important. So it's heterodox teaching that can be very dangerous in the life of the church because it's a teaching that deviates from a standard of the apostles. Um, so we don't know exactly what they're teaching, but we know it was different. And we know, second of all, that they were preoccupied with myths and endless genealogies around the Old Testament law. Um, one, one writer referred to this sect as uh, Jewish mysticism. It seemed like they were preoccupied and hungry for esoteric knowledge and around genealogies. If you look at books that aren't in the Bible, the book of Jubilees, um, what's that? Well, if you look at the book of Jubilees, it, there's, um, there are these rabbinic traditions based off the genealogies of Scripture that diverge from Scripture. And they'll base doctrine off of these divergencies. 
And so we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we know it diverged from the teaching of the apostles, that it was fixated on the Old Testament law, and it was especially hungry for obscurities. Um, and it left Christ out of the center of the life of the church. How is Timothy to respond? He is to, he says, I urge you, when I went to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So if a church is going to be healthy, Paul says, I urge you, that is, I earnestly exhort you that you command them not to teach any different doctrine. Charge means command. These are two very strong words. I charge you, I earnestly exhort you that you command people not to teach any different doctrine. This is very important. We're not just handing down ritual. This is truth from God and it is very, very essential to the life of the church that you build a church upon truth and don't allow heterodox teaching in the life of the church. So, Paul's telling Timothy to be intolerant of teaching, of any teaching, that diverges from the fundamentals of the gospel. Even a slight deviation from the fundamentals can be very injurious to the life of the church. Um, I saw a picture online the other day of a measuring tape next to, a me next to another measuring tape, and the inch line was different on both of them. One had an inch that big, the other had an inch about that big. Now, let's say one of them is wrong, one of them is right. If you build a house with the right one, according to the codes and everything. Ray knows about this. If you build according to the right one, an inch will be an inch and you'll have a solid house, a solid building. But if you build a house based off an inch that is not actually an inch, it's going to throw off everything. All the measurements will be thrown off. Their cuts will be wrong. The house will not be built according to code and it won't be safe. So I think that's a good, that's kind of in my head when I think about doctrine that diverges. Even if it's a little divergence, it's going to throw off a house. Um, so how are we going to preserve sound doctrine in this church? We do it, first of all, by a clear statement of faith. You can see that on our church website. It is, a, it is a crystal clear statement of faith surrounding the central issues. God, the Trinity, man being made in, his, in, in God's image but is a sinner. Salvation being offered by God through Christ which must be received by faith. The church um, as God's specific people. The last things, Christ coming again, new heavens and new earth. There's more than that there, but um, all the members of this church need to sign off on that specific statement of faith because we protect the door of the church with that statement. So if anyone diverges from that statement of faith, there's, they're not going to be let in the front door of the church. It's as simple as that. We must preserve sound doctrine in this church. That being said, We need to understand also, in, in, as part of, please understand this, as part of preserving sound doctrines, we need to understand um, the various degrees of importance for certain doctrines. So, for example, there's a, there's a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Orland. And I, I like the way he puts it. He says, there are doctrines to die for. There are doctrines to divide over. There are doctrines to debate. And there are doctrines to decide. 
That's a very helpful schematic because I think part of preserving sound doctrine is keeping those things in order in your mind. The death of Christ for, for sins and his resurrection and his lordship, that's something to die for. The problem is when you take a doctrine that is not as important as that, something to decide, and put it on the same level as something to die for. And you, you mix, you mix the, the importance of things. And that's how churches can go astray as well. And they say, they, these are the kinds of churches that know everything for 100% certainty. There's no wiggle room. Their statement of faith is a thousand pages long. It is, it is amazing to me. It is amazing to me some of the, the theological excellence of the old statement of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. I am just overwhelmed with the theological precision and excellency of these things. But as I read, I agree with 98% of most of those things. Um, but I, I find myself diverging in some ways from, the, from their statements. I think if, you're, if, if you are sure about everything, I would call that into question. There's, there are some things that we cannot be sure about, and we need to realize this and embrace it and move forward with a holy life. Um, now I had a verse I wanted to share with you okay in Deuteronomy 29.29 the Lord tells this to Israel he says the secret things belong to the Lord but the things that are revealed to us the things that are revealed they belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law there are secret things, and they belong to the Lord. And then there are things revealed to us and to our children. There's the truth we need to cling to. And God has revealed these things so that we might do and obey them and be faithful to what we know. So we're not, going, we're not the kind of church that is going to place a doctrine of the millennium on par with Christ's death and resurrection. See what I'm saying? There's, there's an order of importance when it comes to doctrines. I will debate with you, we'll decide different doctrines, but we will refuse in this church to make a non-central doctrine something that we'll, we want to die for. We'll keep the main thing as the main things in this church. So, we preserve sound doctrine in this church by holding to a clear statement of faith that elevates the central issues and does not hold, uphold peripheral issues as fundamental to the faith. A good book that you might read, and I think this is not just a book that you read, but it's a reference work for life, is Wayne Grudem, Grudem's Systematic Theology, is a good introduction to just the basics of Christian doctrine. Um, and I encourage you, develop your own statement of faith. What do you believe about God exactly? What, do you believe man is a, a sinner? Um, did he inherit his sin from Adam? Did Christ die for the sins of the world? How must we respond to him? I think it would be a great practice for every Christian to clearly outline their statement of faith and see where they... Do I ask yourself, do I understand everything? Can I write a clear statement of faith? Can I put verses next to that? And that might be a good way to bolster your doctrinal knowledge. Another thing you might do is come to my house on Wednesday for systematic theology class because we're studying systematic theology, which is basically systematizing the data of Scripture into a coherent system of thought. So what does the Bible teach about God, about man, about Christ, about salvation, so on and so forth? So, first, 
way for a step towards being brought to a firm and stable basis in this church is to preserve sound doctrine. Next, prioritize faithful living as the other way. These people in Ephesus were preoccupied with aimless knowledge rather than faithful living. The Apostle Paul says, teach them not to devote themselves to endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Their preoccupation with obscurity promoted speculation rather than stewardship. That word speculation is oikonomia in the Greek. It sounds like the word economy. So Paul is saying, teach them not to devote themselves to speculation, but to devote themselves to the economy, the plan of God that is by faith. Um, and what is the plan of God for a Christian? Since the beginning of time, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brethren. So not just predestined to be saved, but predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There is a sanctifying aim of, to redemption, and that is to be Christ-like in this life, to be where Christ is in the next. So the economy of God is not aimless knowledge. It's not endless of debate about obscurities. It's good order, responsibility, and faith working in love. Now, I mean, you know me, guys, right? Like, we, we know each other. I, I am... I, I, when I say these things... I want to say all of them as strong as I can. Like, when I say preserve sound doctrine, I mean study. I mean, the amount of study I do for systematic theology, you would laugh. I really care about sound doctrine, and I'm not pushing that to the wayside when I say faithful living instead of speculation. The problem, the problem in so many churches is they fall off to one end or the other. I've never understood this. Why is it that there are churches that are all about doctrine and they, and they talk about the most precise doctrinal things but their living is loose and questionable and not as Christ-like as one would think a Christian should be striving for. These things ought not to be. Why can't we be the most intellectually robust people and also a holy people? Why is that? Why not be both? I don't understand why so many churches diverge into or fall into one category. I certainly don't want to fall into one category as a person, and I don't want to fall into one category as a church. I want form in our doctrine and fire in our souls in this church. So, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy the teaching that accords with godliness. If it's a teaching, if it's a truth, it's a teaching that accords with godliness. It corresponds to godliness. So, what we're about is not aimless, esoteric knowledge which will never really get a grasp of. And, of course, we won't fully grasp God. But the point of our study is ultimately to appreciate who God is to get a heart of worship, to understand God's truth, to live God's ways, to love God fully with joy. So, good doctrine. Let's insist upon good, sound doctrine and exegesis in this church. Then let's insist upon godliness rather than speculation. Now, I'm now at the most important part. Or I, I could talk about it as the second most important part, but let me say it's the, it's the thing that binds the other two together. 
Now you can have sound doctrine in the church. And you can have people striving for or to look godly. Right? So then you have doctrine and the look of godliness when really that's just knowledge and legalism. Right? But the one thing necessary that binds them all, one ring to bind them all, the one thing that makes, that animates those things, that vivifies and quickens and strengthens those things, is love. The Apostle Paul says in verse 5, Teach them, well, teach them not to promote themselves to endless speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul said, I could speak with the tongues of angels. And if I have not love, then I'm just a sounding gong. You could have all knowledge, all wisdom. You could die for the gospel. And if you do not have love, it's empty and void. Now, how does Paul know this? How does Paul know the aim of our charge is love? When you read the Apostle Paul, please note that he is teaching the teachings of Christ. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer was, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus was a teacher of the love of God, the extension of God's will for your good. Paul says, love fulfills the law in Romans. He writes, own no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, love for a Christian has a two-directional aim. God and man. Love for God, directed at God, is to have a sense of his goodness in your life. Because you've been forgiven of great sin. And Jesus said, whoever forgive, has been forgiven lo much, loves much. So it's to have a sense of God's goodness and mercy. It's a hunger and a desire to see God lifted up and worshipped and glorified. It's a sense of his perfections and beauty and awesomeness and mighty and power and it's, it's a hunger to do his will in your life in the life of your family and in the world love for man simply is wanting and doing what is best for somebody wanting truly wanting the best for a person and doing it so that's the great commandment it's the principle by which all Christ's disciples will be known. By this, you will know that they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, notice that the past three minutes I've been speaking, everyone from everyone, in, almost everyone in the world will agree with what I just said. That love is the key. You know, what the world needs now is love. Everyone's going to say this. Everyone's going to agree with this. Yes, it's almost become a necessary thing that you say. Yes, love is the thing we need. Um, but Paul is not talking about love as an abstract platonic ideal that just exists out there that we should bring ourselves to. 
Paul is talking about love in connection with Christian character. He says, love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, unmixed motivations, a pure conscience, an inner testimony that you are actually doing God's will, and a sincere faith, right belief in the gospel. That's the threefold origin of love in this passage. So love without truth is not really love. So when Paul says the aim of our charge, think of it as a bow and arrow. Think of it as a man aiming at a target. Target. What he's aiming at is love. So our doctrine needs to be lined up and aimed at love. And if we don't aim our doctrine at love, we've missed the mark. A few years ago, I was uh, hunting, and the buck that I've been waiting for came. I had this guy on camera. I knew his name. I knew his patterns. And I wanted him bad. <laughs> but what, I don't know if, if you've heard the term buck fever before, but it's, it is when you see a buck come across or a deer come across, you start to shake. And it's like your body loses control. It's like this, I don't know what it is. Maybe not for women, I don't know. But for men, we, we start to lose control of our faculties because this deer is right there. And so with that being said, so picture me losing control of myself in this deer, looking at this nice 8 to 10 point buck in the woods, a nice crisp day. And um, what you do when you're bow hunting, a compound bow, is you pull back and there's something called a peep sight. And that peep sight, you have to look through this small hole, peep sight, and line it up with another sight. So the, you have to look through the hole and line it up with the other sight and put that on your target. And if you line those three things up, the peat sight, the target, and the deer, you'll hit. The problem was I was I was so I had such buck fever is that I forgot what I forgot to line up my peep sight with my eye. And I was just looking at the, the pin and lining it up with the deer. And I forgot to look through the peep sight, so I pulled back and it went right into the ground. And I missed the deer, and the deer jumped and looked around. And I was frantically trying to get another bow or arrow in my bow, but then he kind of pranced off. And whenever you see a deer's tail kind of wagging, it's almost like they're waving bye, gotcha. <laughs> So he got me. The problem is I didn't line up my peep sight with the, the pin. I had the pin on the deer, but I didn't have the peep sight lined up. So in hunter's terms, I would like to say that when we think of the peep sight, it's our doctrine. And that needs to be lined up with the sight of love then we can shoot accurately. But if we don't line up our doctrine with love, we will miss the mark. Because love is the mark of the Christian. It's the aim of our charge. So, line up your doctrine, peep through your doctrine, and aim at love, and you're sure to hit the target. If you don't, you're sure to miss. So we need to be a church of doctrine, a church marked by true piety before God, and above all else, a church marked by genuine love for God and man. That's what I'm aiming for to be as a person, and that's what you should be aiming for as a person as well. And it's love that earnestly desires the best for all men yet does not tolerate sin. It's love that's compelled by Christ's own love. 
and takes hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. And it's love that hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. And Paul says in verse 6, By swerving from these, some have wandered off into a vain discussion. So the sound doctrine which Timothy is to preserve, the stewardship and faithful living which he is to command, and the love which is the aim, certain persons by swerving from these things have wandered off into vain discussion. As I said, many churches are doctrine churches. Many churches are quote-unquote holy churches, which slide into legalism. But without love, they are not actually animated by the transcendent power and vitality of the divine. Dallas Willard, in one of the most penetrating sentences ever written, writes this about Christian churches, conservative and liberal. He says, Each of the two parties now mainly defined themselves and prided themselves in not being the other, and neither exhibited an inherent richness or strength to mark themselves as transcendent life forces powerful enough to threaten the structures of secular existence. I want to be a church that's marked by a transcendent force of life, powerful enough to threaten the structures of secular existence by the power of God's love. I, I tell you that when that school shooting happened, I forget where that was, um, Pennsylvania, what, what's that group called? The Amish people. Their son shot up, their son, um, not their son, their daughters were killed by a gunsman and they went to the mother's house of the gunsman that night to pray for her and to tell her that they hold no animosity for her. Those, those men and women that just lost their families, that is power. That, that is something that will utterly destroy the structures of secular existence. That's the kind of vitality. So, what is so sad, what is so sad about the church at Ephesus is that it constantly needs to be reminded about love in particular. Turn with me to Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, Jesus is warning the churches. And to the church in Ephesus, listen closely to what he says. The angel of the church in Ephesus, verse 1, write the words of him, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is to the church at Ephesus. Somewhere between 10 and 30 years later. First um, Timothy is written in about 62 to 67 AD. The book of Revelation could have been written anywhere from 69 AD to 93 to 95 AD. I believe it's on the earlier side. But any, in either way, it's 10 to, to 30 years later, or 5 to 30 years later. Verse 2, I know your works and your toil and your patience, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. So this is good. They cannot bear evil. They, they rightly discern sin in the world. Good, Ephesus. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found and are found to be false. I know that you are enduring faithfully and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
So secondly, they're remaining faithful. They're unwavering. They're sticking to it, the gospel. But, verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen from. Repent and do the works that you did before. If not, I will come and remove you from remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I think that is very, very telling. How the thing that this church was good at was knowing when sin was sin. They called out sinners. They called out the false preachers. They were remaining faithful to the traditions held to them. But the one thing they abandoned? Love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So can we be a church that has all three? Sound doctrine, faithful living, and love? Let's, Let's aim for right thinking, right living, and right motivation in the life of this church. And we will be good. Lastly and briefly, the fourth way we preserve, and perhaps the most fundamental way we preserve um, sound doctrine, or we preserve this church to be a firm church, is through the teaching of Christ, the gospel of Christ. In specifically, um, in First Timothy. Here, it seems like the teachers were making the law as a necessary means of relating to God. And the effect is that this had, this put Christ out on the edges of the Christian life and put law in the middle. Now, I just want you to understand that the law, the Old Testament is the finger that points to Christ. Now, what does a baby do? When a baby point, when you point your finger at something to, a, to an infant, they stare at your hand, right? They stare at your finger. But a, a mature person, a person of understanding, will not just look at the hand, but look at the thing that it points to. The Old Testament law is the finger that points to Christ. John 5.39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And Luke, he says, All the law and the prophets wrote about me. So the law is the hand, the finger, that leads us to Christ. And it seems that this sect was placing the law back at the center. They were staring at the hand instead of what the hand was pointing to. So the law, they, so Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. As New Covenant Christians, we do not follow the Old Testament law. Please let me repeat that. We do not follow the Old Testament law. Not because we just think it's out of touch now with, with the way things are in the 21st century, but because there is a new covenant in Christ. The law, to be used lawfully, is there to point out your sin. And you've seen this done in the way of the master before. So the law is good to point out your sin. It shows that lying, cheating, stealing, murder, adultery, those are not the things of God. Um, But it's not there to be looked at and followed and obeyed without any reference to Christ. We are a new covenant church. So the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.24 makes this as, as explicit as possible when he says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law is there. It was there as a tutor to lead God's people to a Savior. 
big picture and really quick, I could see three purposes in the law, why God gave it. Number one, it was historically, it supervised God's people until the Christ should come. Secondly, it revealed God's character. He hates sin and holds fast to what is good. Thirdly, it's redemptive in that it shows our need for a Savior, and that's the one that is very, very pertinent today. Now, we could still look back at the law today and see God's character. We can see the history of redemption, and we can see how it points out our sin to us. So the law is very useful if it's used lawfully. You can see your sin in it. You can see the character of God in it. But it is the finger of God that points to Christ, who is the fullest revelation of God. And this is why Jesus said about the Old Testament law, he says, Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. So the law made provisions that didn't strike at the heart of God. Christ does. So we follow the law of Christ in our church. Which means a lot of things, but if I could boil it down, it means that you have faith in Christ. And by virtue of that faith, you are filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ. And now, by keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, we are to become Christ-like as we study His words and intentionally seek to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. So, the last way is we hold Christ up as the interpretive lens for the scriptures. Those are the four ways I believe our church will become an established church. Or those are four necessary ways. We preserve sound doctrine. We insist on faithful living. We keep love as our central and guiding principle. And we hold Christ up as the interpretive lens for Scripture. And that will keep us safe from falling into ditches of heresy and will keep us moving forward in faithful ways, I believe. Let's close in a word of prayer.